Last Sunday, I started a, a series for April about great conversations with Jesus. And I've taken five specific conversations surrounding this whole uh, passion of the Christ, his, his week with the disciples, and, and then his arrest and all of that that happens. And after the resurrection, he had some conversations. So I've chosen five of those great conversations to share last uh, Sunday was a little different because he had a conversation with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, that's the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed because everything was on the line that day in Gethsemane. Um, but it's a conversation today we're going to look about look at is about power and politics. I know that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in our lives, but uh, we're going to look at a conversation he had with someone that really tied into two things, two things going on there, power and politics. Now, I'll tell you, Jesus avoided politics. If you follow him when people tried to pull him into political debate, he pretty much kept, his, kept that at a distance because he did not come here to be political. He came here to rescue us. And you don't do that through politics. He came here to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor, to preach it with the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. But you cannot mistake, and we're going to read, first of all, from Luke's account of this in Luke chapter 23, if you want to go ahead and turn there. But politics took over the night that Jesus was uh, betrayed, arrested, and started this incredible a uh, number of hours of torture and eventually the, the, his crucifixion. Um, this is going to give us a little bit of a fuller picture as we look at all four Gospels. We're going to do that this morning like we did last week because all of them mention this particular person that is engaging in conversation with Jesus. It's kind of interesting the more you look at it that there's a lot going on here. And I'm talking about Pontius Pilate, that brief conversation that Jesus had with the men who had the authority to sentence him to death or to free him. But who is this man? Um, Pontius Pilate was born in Italy, and, and if you don't really uh, know this, it's not just the Gospels that mention him. There's two prominent historians, um, Josephus one, Philo the other, and there was, I think, Tacitus mentioned him. Back in 1961, they were excavating Caesarea. Caesarea is a beautiful seaport city in Israel. And it's where the Roman governor's main residence was. They did not live in Jerusalem. They lived in Caesarea. And if you see the difference in the two settings, it's easy to see why the Roman governor wanted to see, had the sea as uh, his focus. And there's a big amphitheater there. They built a aqueduct and all of that, but usually he was living in Caesarea. For the sake of this account, he is in Jerusalem for what is going on. But he was uh, appointed by the emperor Tiberius in AD 26 as the governor of Judea, and uh, that gave him a lot of leeway as to what that office entailed. Uh, these appointments usually lasted from one to three years. But Pilate managed to be there a little over 10 years, which is uncommon 
which let us know that he really knew how to play this game pretty well to make it to 10 years. For the most part, Rome was very happy with what he did. But as you see toward the end of this message, Rome uh, had to uh, deal with him in a matter that ended his tenure as governor of Judea. He is mentioned outside the scriptures, but in in 1961 in Caesarea, there was an excavation of that amphitheater, and lo and behold, all these people, Brenda and I went to see the case for Christ Thursday night, and it was a phenomenal story. I already know the story of Lee Strobel. I knew that he was, he and his wife were atheists, but it kind of built, it built around this is the historicity of the death and resurrection of Jesus, trustworthy outside of scriptures. And Lee Strobel's effort to show that it's not ended up bringing the net that caught him and brought him to a place of salvation. So in 1961, that's not that far back, in excavating, they found the only artifact that had Pontius Pilate's name on it in that Caesarea amphitheater ruins. And here's what was on it. It was him paying tribute to Tiberius and showing appreciation to the emperor. And it's clearly marked Pontius Pilate. So here's another historical fact that shows that this was a real man, this really happened, and it's like we should share with anyone. I looked at the lyrics on the song, that we are light in this broken world. If this really happened, then wow, shouldn't we be telling people about it? That this is not a story, this is not made up. These things really happen. But here's the four functions that the governor that was appointed over any area in Roman law, these were his responsibilities. Number one, he is the single judge of all legal action. There's not a court, there's not lawyers, there's not a jury. He is the prosecuting attorney, the jury, and the judge, and he could deem anyone to be executed legally because that was his authority. So anyone that was killed... It had his stamp of approval on it, unless somebody committed murder and then they were arrested and then their fate was in his hands. The second responsibility that Pilate had, like all governors, was to raise taxes and collect taxes. This was one of his important functions because Rome was all about money. I know that money does not have any role in politics today, but it did back then. Uh, So he was supposed to make sure all the revenues that Rome had to its advantages was collected. The third thing that he was responsible for was any building projects. And so any kind of expansion of anything came under his jurisdiction. Now, they did get a little mad at him because he took some money from the temple resources to help build that aqueduct over in Caesarea. No politicians do that today, do they? And here's the last, his main responsibility, especially in Judea, because for Rome, Judea was a problem. Why was it a problem? Because these were religious people. These, they didn't worship pagan gods. They worshiped the Jehovah God, and, and so it was the clash of two cultures. And so there's always protest, and his job was to make sure These things did not get out of hand. It was to keep law and order. And as a former military man, sometimes he got pretty rough with people 
And he did so with Jesus, you found out. So let's read the passage in Luke chapter 23, if you're there. This is the very start of the chapter, so you should be able to follow me very well here. Then the whole assembly rose and led him, referring to Jesus, off to Pilate. And as they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. You know, we hear a term now, but it applies here. That's fake news. Fake news right there. Yeah. <laughs> he, he never opposed payment to Caesar. In fact, he actually, you know, reinforced it. But here they are. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar's and, or Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for charging for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teachings. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And here's where you see Pilate's knack for staying for 10 years as governor. He hears one word in that last line, and he says, I've got an out here. He hears the word Galilee. And so he says, is, is that where he's from? Well, it's not my jurisdiction. That's Herod. And as you read on, he sends Jesus over to Herod. But this is the first meeting that Jesus has with Pilate. And he simply asks him just one question in the initial stage. Well, are you the king of the Jews? He says, well, you said so. And then he finds a way to get out of it, to dodge this. I'm sure he's heard of reports of Jesus, the great crowds, the miracles, all these things that's been happening. But he really didn't have much of an interest in Jesus because it never brought unrest to Jerusalem. You remember, vast majority of Jesus' ministry was not in Judea. It's up in Galilee. Almost all of his big crowds that he gathered was not in Judea, is up in Galilee. So maybe, maybe Pilate wasn't too concerned about him because nothing was happening around that would really bring disturbance. So he was concerned, though, but in this early hour, the chief priests and the scribes and all of them were coming to his palace and making a scene. So Pilate sends him over to Jesus. Now, or over to Herod. Let me just ask you this. Isn't it interesting, on the night that this happens, within a short period of time, Jesus stands before the two most powerful men in all the country. Herod happened to be in Jerusalem. Almost all of the people of importance came to Jerusalem for Passover because it was a big thing. Pilate was there because he knew there was going to be trouble. If there's going to be trouble, it's going to be on one of these feast days. So he's there. So he sends him over to Herod and listen to this. Think about this. When Jesus stands in front of Herod and he asks him questions, he doesn't say a word to this man. Not a single word. He just stands there. And they make fun of him. They mock him. They have a little fun with him. But there's no interest because he's not responding to any of it. When Jesus is standing there, think about this is the man that ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. So he's looking within just feet 
of the person who ordered the death of his friend and some believe distant relative, John the Baptist. This is the man that ordered. But John the Baptist, he didn't mind jumping into political things, did he? He really publicly rebuked Herod for taking his brother Philip's wife. And he said, that's not right. And it wasn't really a good thing to do in that day and time either because it cost John the Baptist his life. I don't know whether Jesus just looked at him and says, I don't owe this man a response. I don't owe him anything. I don't have to answer to him. Besides, he killed John the Baptist. So they send him, send him back. And remember the charge. What was the charge that the Sanhedrin uh, charged Jesus with? That condemned him to death. What was the charge? One word. Blasphemy. You know, the high priest rips his clothes and says, oh, we don't need any more witnesses. He's committed blasphemy, so he deserves death. But they don't say that when they go to Pilate, do they? They, they know how to play this political game. They hit the right buttons for Pilate to have an interest. He opposes paying taxes to Caesar. And none of that was true. You see, politics is definitely dominating. If you go over to Mark's account in Mark 15, I'll read just a couple of verses from Mark 15, but Pilate knows these guys. He knows them, they know him, and they have not functioned together without knowing each other. He knows what their buttons are, they know what his buttons are, and they are doing their political thing. Mark gives us this insight. If you're there at Mark 15, verse 9, he asked Pilate, says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing that it was, are you there? Knowing that it was what? Out of what? Envy. Some say self-interest. Some say ill will. He knew that, he knew why they brought Jesus. There was a jealousy factor there, but not just a jealousy. There was a, there was a reaction from them because Jesus was getting too popular. And he knew that their motivation was not legal. It was not that this man had done something wrong. So he, was asked, he knew that their motivation was wrong. And the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So here was a, a pagan man, a ruthless man that could look through the veneer of religious leaders and know they were only protecting their own territory. That's called political motivation. You haven't heard that term lately either, have you? Political motivation is when you do something to protect what you want, even if you do it unethically, because it's justified if the end satisfies your cause called situational ethics. And this is what was going on with Jesus and Pilate and these chief priests. You go over to Matthew's account of Jesus standing before Pilate. Pilate has a message delivered while he's at the seat trying to decide what to do with Jesus. He gets a message from his wife. And Pilate's wife has had a dream about Jesus. And she sends this panic note to him, have nothing to do with this man. 
This innocent man, she says, have nothing to do with him. I've suffered much because of a dream that I've had of him. You know, legend says that Pilate's wife later became a believer. Well, I wouldn't doubt that because things just go haywire after this a few years down the road for them. But who knows? It's just a legend. But one part of the conversation I want you to focus on is in the last gospel to be mentioned, and that's John. So I want you to turn to John 18. So this is, this is where we're going to really focus on what's going on between Jesus and Pilate. This is John 18, beginning with verse 28. You think about it, this, this was quite a meeting between two men. Here's Pilate, the, the most powerful man in the region, and here's Jesus who's turned the world around there upside down through his preaching, through his challenging of the status quo, through lifting up the status of women. He was doing everything that culture strained at to maintain, and he was breaking it up, and they just couldn't have that. This is an interesting verse, John 18, 28. I'm going to stop, just read this by itself, okay? Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Think about that. Think about what they're doing and what they're concerned about. They've paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to set his own teacher up. They've paid unsavory people to pose as false witnesses to try to get a conviction against Jesus because they know they have nothing on him. They're dealing with a pagan man and convincing him to crucify him but they are too holy to step inside the courtyard because he's a Gentile. (laughs) And that's how people are. They got some rigid rules and the core of their being is rotted. No wonder Jesus said, you're full of dead men's bones. There's something in the core of your life that is wrong. And this exposes it. They didn't want to defile themselves. This is the logic of people who's caught up in their own interest. They point, they're, they're pointed in ways of the rules that they just make up as they go. But it gets interesting. In verse 36, right before the, the, the scourging, the whipping of Jesus, here is what Jesus says to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. And following the scourging, they bring Jesus back, and he's not even recognizable. Some say that the language of Isaiah 53, that his vision was so marred that they didn't know him, that that you wouldn't have recognized him. If you saw him before the scourging and after, he was beaten beyond recognition. So he's standing there in front of Pilate, and the Jews are insisting that he's got to die. He's got to be crucified. And all along, 
Pilate from his wife, from his own convictions of a man who wants that to be justified. He sees nothing in Jesus worth killing him. And this is how we read beginning in John 19, verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, they finally really reveal their problem with him. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. That's the blasphemy charge. Listen at Pilate's response and reaction. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. And Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realize I have power? The word is exousia. It could also be translated authority. Don't you know I have power? You would have, I have power, authority, either to free you or to crucify you. Here is the conversation that I want you to see. Jesus, standing, beaten beyond recognition, says this. This is, The words don't fit him, does it? He's just been beaten to a pulp. He's barely alive. He's just soaked in his own blood. And he's standing there looking at the most powerful man in front of him, and he says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. What a defiant stand Jesus took. You want to talk to me about authority and power? He's looking in the face. Pilate is looking in the face of authority. And he does, it doesn't fit how he looks. He says, you wouldn't have a shred. The, the, the message says that. He wouldn't have a shred of power authority. If it was not given to you from above. Then he adds this. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried, and you could say desperately, to set Jesus free. Here was this moment where the most powerful man had it within his hands to set him free. The Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend to Caesar. What do you call that? Politics. Pull out the political card. They knew the buttons to push, and they're pushing them. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Why why are these people concerned about Caesar's status? Now, they're just after... This kind of lets you know when people want something, they'll do whatever they need to do to get it done, no matter how wrong it is. The message says this. Pilate said, you won't talk? Don't you know that I have the authority to pardon you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus said, you have a shred of authority over me except what has been given you from heaven. That's why the one who betrayed me to you has committed a far greater sin. 
far greater fault. Pilate didn't realize how shaky his authority really was right then. Just a few years later, he put down a protest in Samaria with some Samaritans, and it was so brutal, so vile, so awful that Rome found out about it and called him to come and face the interrogation of it. In A.D. 37. And when he got there, Tiberius, on his way, Tiberius had died from a lengthy illness and Caligula, an emperor he really did not want to deal with, was now in place. Now, there's a lot to say about what happened to Pilate, but a lot of writers, Josephus and others, suggest that it sounds like he committed suicide. Here's what people don't know. There was one report that said Caligula told him you need to commit suicide to save your face. He says, why would people do something like that? Why didn't they just execute him? If they felt like he overstepped his boundaries and his parameters as to what he was supposed to do as a governor in killing all those Samaritans and the way he killed them, if he did that, why don't they just execute him? Well, you know, certain regimes have a weird honor system. You probably remember the field marshal Rommel that was Patton's nemesis in North Africa. You remember that? Anyone know what happened to Rommel? He committed suicide. But he committed suicide because they started questioning his loyalty to Adolf Hitler. And because there was an attempt on Hitler's life, they believed Rommel was part of it. But he was the most popular general in Germany. So here's politics. They talked to him and says, his, his son wrote an article about this. They talked to him and says, if you will, if you'll take this poison and commit suicide, you'll get a state funeral and your family will not be harassed or punished. But if we have to kill you, we'll kill your family too. We'll just mow them down with guns. And so here's Rommel taking what he thinks is the only outlet he has to protect his family. Even though most people believe he wasn't part of that, that strategy to kill him, he did believe that the war was not winnable. And, he, and when Hitler and him found out about what he thought, but he was just probably the most rational person in the whole group. But it shows you what was going on with Pilate. Pilate was dead by suicide, whether he was, did it voluntarily or Caligula ordered it. But here's the closing note, and that the praise team can come up. Think about the two main people involved in Jesus' demise to be crucified. It was Judas. What happened to Judas? He committed suicide. And here's Pilate. This is about maybe six years or so after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And Pilate knows he's doing wrong, doesn't he? 
He knows he's doing wrong. What does he do? He gets a basin of water and he washes his hands and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And he says, no, you're not. Washing your hands does not remove the guilt of the soul. And here's two men. I like to say that there was a person who got close enough to the gate of heaven to kiss it and didn't get in. And that was Judas. And here was Pilate standing before men. And I think somewhere in Pilate's mind, he's thinking, this guy says he's the son of God. That's, it said it made him more afraid. He's like, who is this guy? When he had, where did you come from? And Pilate had it within his reach. And I know what, I know what people say. Well, what, what if he turned him loose? We wouldn't, we wouldn't be here for Easter and resurrection. Oh, yes, we would. It would be easy to understand that that mob would take over and take Jesus out and crucify them, crucify him. But here's a man, two men that are in hell. And they were this close to Jesus. One of them close enough to kiss him on the cheek and was eternally lost. Here's the message. Proximity is not necessarily a legitimate relationship with the Lord. It's receiving the Lord in our souls. And both of these men had an opportunity. The same word, exousia, that Jesus was telling them, you wouldn't have any authority. You would not have any exousia, any power. That same word is what Jesus says, all power. It's exousia. It's not dunamis. The, uh, uh, the normal word for power, exousia, is more than just raw power. It's the capacity to make things happen. And Jesus said, all of that is now mine after his resurrection in heaven and earth. That's why we can tell people, you can be healed. There's some probably here this morning that's going through a time of brokenness. There's hope for you. There's a, there's a message for you from the Lord and that he's close to you. All you have to do is say, help me, Lord. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? I think, I think one of the most moving moments in that movie I'm sitting next to Brenda, I'm wiping my face, is when Leslie Strobel starts hearing her, her atheistic husband, who's battled her about her faith for two years, say this, I've tried, I've tried, I've, I've tried to disprove all this. God wins. And you see this look, the actress that played for us is amazing. You see this look. And she says, what are you saying? I believe. She says, more than that, you've got to receive. And she told this high intellectual newspaper reporter for the Chicago Trinity, you've got to talk to God yourself. And the prayer was something, wasn't it? Well, God... I don't know exactly what I'm doing. 
But that moment, he was transformed by the power of God. Would you stand with me? Lord, I pray this morning...